Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Let's look together at the Gospel of Luke. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we sang that hymn with such power, thinking of the substitutionary death of Jesus, put yourself back in this particular day in Jesus' ministry and think as we read this about this expert in the law And as we we sang that hymn, it struck me, who would not have understood those powerful words about our great need for Jesus alone and what Jesus did. And this parable is one that's well known, but we're going to see it has application to this issue of how we are saved. Let us hear God's word, Luke 10 at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I would guess that the parable of the Good Samaritan may be the most well-known, if not one of the most well-known passages of Scripture of all time. Even those who don't want anything to do with most of what the Bible teaches like this parable. When he was president, Thomas Jefferson decided to produce an edited version of the Bible to suit his liking. He called it the philosophy of Jesus. Gone from his Bible were all of the Bible's miracles. Gone was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And conveniently edited out were all the references in the Bible to Jesus 
as deity, as God himself. But as you might guess, the parable of the good Samaritan made it into Jefferson's Bible. I don't think that kind of reaction should surprise us. The world may mock the Christian's teaching, especially teaching about the way of salvation, the problem of sin, who God is, uh, the idea of you need to be born again. But for the most part, the world has always been impressed with the ethics of Christianity, at least some of the ethics, and probably no section more than this teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's very familiar, and yet that makes it somewhat dangerous to read through it. Probably, as I read it, most of you said, well, I know the story. It's familiar. But we must, not, we must be careful not to miss the clear teaching and the context in which Jesus tells the story. And it ought to convict us and encourage us, both of those things. And I want us to see two main points from this familiar parable. The first point is this. This parable exposes our deep need for Jesus Christ. Jesus, in telling this parable, cuts to the very heart and core of any of our self-righteousness, our works righteousness, our theology that we can work our way to God. It's interesting because in the verses before this, Jesus has rejoiced in salvation and in God's sovereignty in salvation. And at one point in verse 21, before our parable begins, Jesus thanks the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that these things are hidden from the wise and understanding and that, they, that God has revealed them to little children. It's almost like on, very, on the cue of Jesus saying that this lawyer, this expert, a lawyer in that day was an expert in Old Testament law. He was a theologian. He was one very schooled in this. But he would have been classified as the category of the wise and understanding. And Jesus says these things are hidden to those who are wise and understanding in that sense of uh, thinking that they know everything. And they're revealed to little children, the little children being those who have that childlike faith in Jesus Christ and, and have the sense of humility to know that they need Jesus Christ. And it tells us here in verse 25, as the parable is introduced, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This expert was asking a right question, but with a wrong motive. Really, it was an attack on Jesus Christ. He was trying to harm Jesus. He was trying to discredit Jesus, to show him to be inconsistent, to show him to be wrong. He wasn't asking this to actually learn this humbly from Jesus. And very likely, he already knew the answer that Jesus would give because like any good teacher, Jesus had probably summarized the two commandments of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Every good Jew would have known these commands. The first one was part of what was called the Shema 
part of Deuteronomy 6, which start, started with the Hebrew word, Hear, O Israel, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And then Leviticus 19.18 was this command to love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of answering the expert, Jesus turns the table on him and asks him what he thinks. And the man answers correctly, of course. Love the Lord your God. He's asking a legal question according to the law. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Was Jesus expecting that the man would do this or could do this? Does anyone here in this room think that any of us do this or anywhere close to this, even for one day, even for one hour of the day, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. We all, I hope, in this room know that we fall deeply short of that. And probably because Jesus just turned the tables on him and let him answer his own question, he probably was feeling flustered somewhat. He thought he had the upper hand when he asked this question so expertly, and he thought that he was going to make Jesus fumble around. Instead, now he's flustered and probably feeling a bit embarrassed with his colleagues around him. And so verse 29 tells us, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice, When this man should have fallen on his knees, like the parable of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisees coming up later in Luke chapter 18, when this lawyer should have fallen on his face before God and said, oh, that is absolutely right. I do not love God with all my heart and soul and strength and mind. I do not love my neighbor as myself. What must I do, O Lord? Have mercy on me. He should have beat his breast like the tax collector in that parable and said, have mercy on me. And in that parable, Jesus says, who went home justified? Not the Pharisee who prayed, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector, that sinner. I'm glad I'm not like that. Jesus said, it's the tax collector who went home justified. That's what the lawyer should have done. In other words, the answer to this question was true in theory, but the Bible makes it clear no one ever fulfills the law perfectly. In fact, we fail utterly. Romans chapter 3, go read Romans 3 and you'll see how that is the case. But somehow this expert wanted to be able to say to himself, I've kept the law well enough. And since we are all sinners, the only way to think to yourself that, you are, that you've somehow done well enough before God is to limit the deep, heart-searching law of God. That's the only way. Now, most Americans, if you stop a man on the street and you ask them, you know, do you th- how do you think you can go to heaven? Well, you know, most Americans will have some degree of morality and say, well, I, I try to do pretty well. I hope that that would be enough for God. That's the functional theology of anyone who doesn't know what the Bible really says. 
It's the nature of all legalism. Legalism is living a life, trying to keep the law by narrowing the heart-searching nature of the law and making it merely a matter of externals. So then if you keep the externals, you can say, well, I've kept the law. It's a convenient way to live, an unbiblical way. And this parable of the Good Samaritan smashes the lawyer's legalistic view of the law of love. You see what I'm saying in this point? Do you have an honest sense of your need for Christ? The parable of the Good Samaritan, we often hear it told and read and how to be neighborly and to love others, which is an application. But the first application is that it, it tells us that we have a deep need for Christ because we do not live up to the law of love. And you have to ask yourself, am I in my heart of hearts, when I think about my relationship to God or how I would come to God, am I coming seeking to justify myself? Seeking to make excuses for myself and say, well, I hope I'm good enough, Lord, because of this. It's, every parent knows when two children come arguing their cases before the parent. You know, you know the, it must be probably by age three, if not by three, by four, that children become lawyers. They become experts and they come to the parents, but that was my toy. Yeah, but I had it first. Yeah, but you hit me. Yeah, but you said this. You know, and they're experts at justifying themselves and arguing their case, aren't they? Aren't we good at that? What is the basis of your relationship to God? Is it, O Lord, my only hope is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, like the hymn we just sang, the power of the cross? Or is it somehow, well, I hope I'm doing okay with with the law. The law commands love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And theologians note that we can't really tell how someone is loving God. The only thing we can see is how, how we love our neighbor. And so that is really an indication of how well we are doing at loving God. And so what about our neighbor? Failure to love our neighbor indicates that to some extent we are not fully loving God. That's the reality of it. First John 4 20, the end of the verse says, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, who he has not seen. It's not wrong to ask questions about Christianity, about the Bible. The Bible certainly encourages that. There are lots of questions that the Bible has within it, but it's wrong to question Jesus Christ with the kind of arrogance that this lawyer did, seeking to trip up Jesus Christ. And people often try to do that, to justify themselves with that sense of putting God on trial. And part of the message of the gospel is the bad news, that we do not keep the law of God. But the good news is that Jesus has come and has died and has been raised again, and now he offers us mercy and he offers to give us a new heart so that we begin loving others in a new way. And that's where we come to the second main point. First of all, then, we have to honestly come to see our need for Christ. But now that we see that, well, what does it look like to love 
others. This parable calls us to God's standard of loving others. God's standard, which is very deep. And it's vital to understand this calling to love others. It's at the heart of the fruit of a Christian's life. One of the primary fruit of the Spirit is love, to love others. Let's look a little closely at this parable in this second point. Jesus tells this story in verse 30. He begins that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile trip from Jerusalem downhill most of the way to Jericho. I haven't ever been there, but those of you who have been there know what it's like. I've seen pictures of it and videos of it, this long and winding descent from Jerusalem. Some parts of it are narrow passages with rocks on both sides and dangerous cliffs. And at the end of the journey, this is especially very dangerous and more desolate. It's the ideal place for bandits uh, to hide out and ambush an unwary traveler. Reminds me of the Westerns I used to watch as a boy. They were old Westerns then. I'm sure they're really old now. But, you know, you see the good guy coming along the cliff and then you think, no, that's going to be a place where the bad guy is. Don't you know that? Aren't you aware of that? And you want to scream out, duck, hide. Of course, the good guy wins somehow anyway. But like those old Westerns, Jesus is describing this, and you just can imagine this man being attacked, being ambushed, and being left for dead. And then the priest comes by, and then the Levite comes by, and they both pass on the other side of the road. And you might think, why? The parable doesn't say why. Maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe they knew it would be inconvenient to stop and help, and certainly costly to stop and help. Maybe they thought it would be dangerous. We had a relative who heard gunshots one night. He and his wife were sitting in their suburban, quiet home, heard fireworks. They thought, they thought well, could be gunshots, and they ran out front, and there was a body in the road. And the other neighbors were out too, and they were all somewhat hesitant to go up to the body on the road. The man was already dead. And my uh, relative did check him out then and called the police, and uh, it was a neighbor who had been shot to death. It was a very terrible incident and crime. But it was interesting, as he told us the story the week it occurred, it's been about five years now. He just talked about that initial hesitancy that all the neighbors had, just like, well, if I go out there, am I going to get shot? Um, I've never had an experience quite like that. But maybe there was a sense of danger. More likely, these were religious figures, a priest, a Levite. A Levite worked in the temple ministry in some way. And they, if they suspected that he might be already dead, if they touched the body, they would be ceremonially unclean. And it would take a whole week of purification rites and some expense and so forth to become ceremonially clean again. Whatever the reason, they, they pass by. And the odd thing is to think about is as they were coming down from Jerusalem, it probably would have implied that they were leaving a time of worship and sacrifice, offering sacrifice to God. And, and yet, with their hearts hopefully full of love for God, they were able to pass by. And then the third character comes along in verse 33. And here, there's a surprising twist to the story. You may think, well, what's the surprising twist? I know the story. 
uh, a surprising twist is that the people that originally heard this would probably expecting the next person to come along to be a, a layman, yes, not to be a, a priest or anything like that, but probably expecting a good and godly Israelite, like a man like Boaz in the book of Ruth, someone who was going to be the hero of the story. But the twist is, instead of an Israelite, it's a despised Samaritan. Now, the further irony is that now, everybody around the world thinks of the good Samaritan. You know, that was the opposite of what people especially Jews in that day, thought this is just about the last person that anyone in Israel would have expected to stop and help in a situation like this. Um, The Samaritans were the remnant of the ten northern tribes who were taken into exile first into Assyria. And a lot of them were taken into Assyria and um, the remnant that was left there Assyria shipped in other ethnic groups, and so there was all kinds of intermarriage with other, with other groups, and um, they lived in the land there, and the Samaritans set up their own centers for worship in opposition to Jerusalem as the center for worship. Uh, they had their own version of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and by the time of Jesus Christ, the Samaritans were seen as heretics and as half-breed foreigners. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 9, when Jesus is encountering the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, John, as the narrator of that, at one point says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He's just commenting on the nature of the relationship. And surprisingly, in the chapter before Luke 10, Near the end of Luke 9, we see Jesus in verses 51 to 56 passing through a village of the Samaritans, but the people did not receive him. Uh, Probably that's because Luke tells us that Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. In other words, the Samaritans didn't like that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Again, where do you worship rightly? And James and John, hearing that, you may know the story, asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the village. <laughs> it gives you a sense of the relationship. Despise Samaritans. It was a great irony. The good Samaritan in Israel at that time, that would have been thought to be an absurd contradiction in terms. But here the Samaritan comes and is, in a sense, the hero of the story. And he has pity on this man. Uh, he's really the Christ-like example for us in this parable. He, he has compassion. He puts himself out at real cost to himself. He, he pours wine, which would have been a disinfectant. You know, we were looking for hand sanitizer the other month, and we ran out and everything. Well, I guess wine could have been something that would have worked, and the oil to help him with his wounds, and then he takes him and puts him on his, his horse and takes him to the inn and pays for him for probably two denarii, would have paid for a week or two at the inn, and then he says, I'm good for that if he needs more. The clear application of this parable is that this is what loving your neighbor looks like, not to merit salvation, 
but out of the overflow of Christ's love now that we have received salvation freely through his blood. And who is our neighbor? Clearly, it's anyone. It's anyone that God providentially brings into our lives. Jesus, in a number of points, even calls us to love our enemies. We're to, we're to bless those who curse us. Yes, there is a special responsibility that we have to members of our family and to brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church and around the world. But the command of God calls us beyond our comfortable, self-centered tendencies. Don't we all know what that feels like? And Jesus, as he calls us to love others, for example, in Luke 6, 32 and 33, he puts it before us, do we just love those who love us? Isn't that the way we tend to work? Well, that person, I'm going to love him or her because they are kind to me and it'll go both ways. Jesus condemns that. He says, don't, don't unbelievers do that? Um, Christians are to be different. Those who are different than we are, those who are oppressed, those who are poor. There's not a legalistic formula to this. There's no simple formula to this. But the principle is this. A heart transformed by Christ will begin to love others in a new and different way. And we all know that throughout our lives, we still fall short of the high calling of the law of God, but Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, and now he is transforming us step by step, bit by bit, ups and downs, with our remaining sin still changing us within to have a greater heart of love for the people that God puts in our lives. Maybe it's the person next door. Maybe it's someone that you got to know on a mission trip. Maybe it's you're involved with a single parent or uh, maybe it's someone whom God has providentially placed in your pathway at your school or at your job or where you are. Maybe it's someone, and maybe even as I say this, this person will come to your mind, someone who is not easy to love maybe even feels like a functional enemy. Maybe that's the person that God is especially using right now to teach you Christ-like love. There are lots of different ways we could think of this. It's interesting. If the story was written another way, um, if the Jew was on the horse coming along the road and the Samaritan on the ground commentators tell us that it's likely that the Jew, the Israelites, would have expected, would, would have expected that the person on the horse, the Israelites, would have ignored the Samaritan. That's the way the relation is. But because of this parable, the lawyer who is listening is pressed into seeing really the beauty of what the Samaritan did, of rising above those differences and loving this man. Ten years ago at General Assembly in the opening night, Pastor Tim Keller preached a sermon on Luke chapter 10. I remember when he began to preach, I thought, how's he going to preach on all of Luke chapter 10? 
And the Good Samaritan was the second of three points. The first points point was on the, sev- the sending out of the 72, and that Christians were going out really with a message that was very narrow. Keller called it a repulsive message. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And repulsive in the sense that there is a true king who demands your allegiance and submission and loyalty and love. And the Christian message is very narrow. And then he preached on the Good Samaritan, how Christians were to love others and the attractiveness of their lives. And then he preached on Martha and Mary as a third point, that how do we get more like the Good Samaritan? It's by sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing him and knowing him. But one, I say that because he talked about the two errors that we can fall into, at least two of many errors of the Christian life. And one is to be true to the message of the gospel. But in holding true to the message of the gospel, we might be valiant for truth, but if our lives don't look any differently, if they're not attractive in the way we love others, then you will have very little impact. It'll be like 1 Corinthians 13. We become like a a sounding gong. The other extreme is that we might have an attractive life, live the life of love, but if we hide our message which is a hard message, the message of sin and salvation through Jesus alone, then likewise, we're not going to have very much impact. We need to hold both of those. We need to have the true message. We need to be valiant and courageous for the truth of God, and we need to do so in an attractive, winsome way, in a Christ-like way. Bold messengers, loving neighbors, sitting at Jesus' feet. Those are the three points. There's a story of a British officer in World War II. Many of you know the movie that's been around a long time, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. But the British officer featured in that movie, that movie arises really from a whole book he wrote after the war to end all wars. Ernest Gordon, the British officer, wrote the book and came to know Christ in this very difficult work camp in Southeast Asia under the Japanese supervision during the war. Late in the war, in fact, after the official end of the war, as Gordon and his fellow officers and men were on various trains through Asia on the way back to Britain, Um, they happened upon a train full of wounded Japanese soldiers nearly dying of neglect at a train stop somewhere along the way. And out of love for Christ, Gordon and and many of his fellow officers began to give aid to these soldiers, their enemies. And they began to... uh, work on their wounds. I won't describe it. Very, very difficult looking situation. Uh, Many about to die. But one of their fellow officers was deeply offended and he said to them, what fools you are. Don't you realize that those are the enemy? And of course, Gordon and his fellow officers knew that. And 
Gordon tried to explain his point to the other officer at this, at this point. And he said, have you never heard the story of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? The man gave me a blank look, so I continued. And he tells a summary story in his book. He summarizes the story of the Good Samaritan. But the officer protested angrily, but that's different. That's in the Bible. (laughs) These are the swine who've starved us and beaten us. They've murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. And Gordon responded by saying, who is my enemy? Isn't he my neighbor? My enemy is my neighbor. It's hard to imagine doing that, isn't it? How are you being called to love your neighbor? Something that I hope you will pray about. It's something that we should pray about every week. Something to be intentional about. Lord, who are you putting in my pathway this week that you've called me to love? In your providence, someone that maybe is in need in some way. Someone that I'm called to have compassion on in some way. Maybe it's someone who feels like an enemy. Don't try to do what the lawyer did. Don't try to justify yourself or excuse yourself, but pray for God to give you a greater heart of Christ-like love and then to seek to act lovingly as Christ gives you strength and God's grace may surprise you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful gospel parallel par- parable. Thank you for the fact that as familiar as it is, we are convicted by it. We're reminded of Christ who loved like this and who loved us like this when we were worse enemies than the enemies of Officer Gordon. Oh Lord, show us yourself through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.